0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Chris Smith is once again with us talking about COVID-19. Virologist, Cambridge University, and Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. How are you?
1: Morning, Kim. Are you well? Yes, I'm in very fine form. How about yourself?
0: I'm very good, thank you. Could you tell me, please, um, I was just reading a story uh, of one journalist who wrote of testing positive. He went into isolation for 14 days. He still had symptoms. He once again got tested and once again was positive. The question is, is it possible that we are letting people out too soon?
1: Well, first of all, I'm not familiar with that particular story that you mentioned, but it doesn't sound so surprising to me. There are lots of viruses that when we test people for them, we find that they test positive for an extended period of time. Some people, the explanation is that they have a problem with their immune system or they're taking drugs that damp down their immune system. And this means that the body just takes a bit longer to rid itself of whatever the infection is. Other things like this new virus just have slightly different dynamics of the infection. Well, they're in in good company because there are a a range of viruses that can do this. And you can test someone and you can come back and test them later. The key thing to bear in mind, though, is that the tests that we're tending to use are very sensitive. In other words, if if the virus is there in your sample, you're going to find it. And this means that there is a risk that when you test someone, you may detect something, but it doesn't mean that person is actually overtly infectious. They're not shedding enough virus to infect another person. They're not shedding appreciable amounts of virus. But your test can't discriminate between someone it can pick up as you're infected and you're infectious and someone in whom there is residual virus being shed that's very low level infectivity and probably incapable of, of meaning that person's a threat to anybody. So both, are the, both eventualities that I've mapped out could account for that person's experience.
0: Um, The antibody tests uh, are once again of interest. Roche, I see, is to start rolling out antibody tests. They're already using tests in Germany, South Korea and Finland. The previous tests that had been ordered in the UK had proved to be unreliable. How important it is for this new generation to work?
1: Yeah, well, testing covers a range of different things. Uh, The word testing means looking for something, but it can mean different things to different people under different circumstances. So when we're asking, is this person in front of me infected right now with this virus, then what we're doing is a test that looks for the genetic information of the virus. But once a person's actually caught it, had an immune response to it and recovered, they've then got no virus we can detect probably but what they almost certainly will have are antibodies in their bloodstream and we can detect those antibodies and they're like a long-lived flag they're a marker that says this person has caught this in the past and different flavors of antibodies are made against different types of infections and so we can go looking for specifically the antibodies associated with having caught and got rid of a particular infection and that tells us a person's had this thing been exposed to it in the past and is now probably immune to it so This is actually going to become increasingly important now because once you've had an appreciable number of people in your population who've caught a virus and you want to then ask, well, how many? One way to do that is to take a sample of people that you hope is representative of your country's population, and that can be tricky. But by testing the seroprevalence, in other words what the frequency is in your sample group of people who have antibodies against the thing you're interested in you can then extrapolate your sample group to the whole population and you get some kind of estimate of how likely it is that that fraction of the population have actually already had the infection and at the moment we're making big guesstimates at this and that's informing our strategy for how long we should stay locked down what we do to get out of the lockdown what the likely prognosis is for the lockdown extending for a very long time whereas if we did one of these tests and we had some idea as to how many people have already had the virus we would then have a clue for how many people actually have the virus asymptomatically we're guesstimating that again at the moment and therefore we'd have some idea as to what the likely threat was in the country and maybe what the best way to then get out of this lockdown situation is so it is becoming important but this is a very new virus. We've only known about this for a very short space of time. So making tests that are reliable, that get the diagnosis right, get the detection of these antibodies accurate, and they tell you, yes, we've actually got the antibodies, or they tell you the antibodies are definitely not there. And they do that with very, very high accuracy, and they can do it at a scale that's a big ask, and that's been the stumbling block. There are tests that would detect these antibodies, but this will be someone with a pipette standing at a, at a laboratory bench doing arduous experiments to do these sorts of tests they're not the kind of thing that you can bang in thousands of samples in a day through a machine that's highly automated and will do this very reproducibly very fast on very large numbers of samples that i think is is becoming the stumbling block and um it's going to become more of a problem as we go forward because we really do now know we've had appreciable spread around the world population we want this sort of data
0: so You think it's a good idea for the UK lockdown to have been extended for another three weeks?
1: Well, the problem is um, we're at this stage where we're beginning to see a benefit. The number of people who were dying in hospital was climbing inexorably until about a week ago. And it got to almost a thousand in a day. And the number of people being admitted to a hospital was climbing at the rate of about a thousand a day. And we were saying the cycle time of this virus, in other words, the time from which a person gets it, then incubates it, then gets unwell for a bit, then gets really quite badly unwell for a bit and then may perish. That time can be as long as a month. So therefore, we've got to be in this and participating in these control measures for quite a long time before you actually see the corner being turned. We've reached that one month point and now our numbers are beginning to come down. The number of people going into hospital has stalled and has begun to drop the number of people who are dying in hospital, it's still high. We're sort of seven, 800, some cases 900 people per day. But the crucial thing is it has not climbed higher. And you would have expected, if, if we hadn't put these measures in place, if we hadn't stopped the transmission, you would have expected it to continue to climb following the exponential format that it was. And that's not happening. So obviously we're at the stage where we've now probably peaked and now we're coming down the other side of the mountain. But... You can't take your foot off the brake too soon because just because you're coming down from a peak, you're still at a very high level. And that shows there's still a very large amount of virus transmission going on and it's there. And if you stop your control measures, it will come roaring back. So you've got to hold your nerve, wait for these numbers to really come down. And this is buying more time. And at the end of that, you then have an opportunity to decide, right, we've got control. We've got the ball in our hands. What do we want to do with it?
0: This, um, this echoes uh, the views of, uh, I think it's a Dr. William Hanage, who said the outbreak in the UK looks more like a mountain range than a peak. And so with that high proportion of asymptomatic cases, the number of cases is being seriously underreported. And so it could come back and come back and come back again.
1: Well, that's true of, of you know any country because it's the same virus. We know it's evolving only very slowly and it's not mutating particularly quick. And therefore, the way in which it will behave in a population similar to the UK is going to be the same all over the world. And so, yes, if we don't keep a control on this, then all of the good work and the enormous cost to everyone in terms of, of surrendering their liberty, surrendering their jobs in some cases – those sorts of things, that, that will amount to naught if we, if we backtrack too quickly. Um, but it's very difficult, very tough one for politicians to make their mind up about what, what they want to do. That There is probably quite a high level of, of asymptomatic uh, transmission in the population. Initially, we didn't have a clue as to what that number was. Then we got some data from things like the cruise ships and things where people were stuck there for a number of weeks and it gave us an opportunity to really study and detail the dynamics. And now people are coming around to the idea that perhaps one case in four or maybe maybe more frequent than that maybe an asymptomatic case and the thing is until we have antibody tests we won't really know that though so it's a guesstimate
0: one of the um the questions that we've had is whether the social distancing measures will be able to be reduced in the short term and i've seen a report from the united states that social distancing measures, according to Harvard report, will need to remain in place until 2022. Does that seem likely?
1: I don't know about that sort of extended duration. I don't think anyone's really able to make those sorts of long-term predictions yet. But certainly in the nearer term, it, we're pretty you know, reassured that this is going to be carrying on for the foreseeable our chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, has said that these measures need to remain in place. And if you think about it, until we have a vaccine, then or we have basically the entire population is immune to this, then there remain in society very large numbers of people who are vulnerable. And if they come into contact with someone who's got it, then they're going to catch it. And those are the very people that we're trying to protect. So it's uh, very, very tricky if we don't all continue to put ourselves in a position where we minimise the chances of having it, then the risk to those people we're trying to protect remains there all the time. And therefore, the risk would rise if we de-escalated from the social distancing. And that's the one thing that we do have control over. You think we've got no vaccines to throw at this. We've got no drugs to throw at this. We do have public health measures. And that's the one thing we know is absolutely guaranteed to work, which is why we're using it.
0: Mind you, I was looking at a shot from the UK yesterday, I think, and it was um, to illustrate a story that uh, people wanted a longer lockdown But the picture of these people was so contrary to that because they were standing so close together.
1: What's your Mm.
0: observation of how social (laughs) distancing is going on in the UK?
1: Well, I must admit, I took part in a teleconference yesterday where uh, a bunch of academics are all getting together and turning their collective mega brain power on things we can do to solve this problem. And we watched this very profound, really, really good quality presentation from these scientists and, and doctors. They're all doctors. They should know better. And then one of my colleagues who was also on the call Uh, piped up when they said so any questions his first question straight in out the blocks was why are you all sitting so close together Uh, you know has this escaped you that you've just given a presentation about how infectious this virus is and how it all spreads and you're all packed into this one little space in front of one webcam like sardines and and they had to admit yeah you're absolutely right guilty as charged and um we had we had to remind them about this but yeah most people are getting behind the spirit of this the thing is that what we're trying to do is is to really educate the population and help the population to appreciate a something that they are very unfamiliar with you know I, I'm a virologist and I'm unfamiliar with with a lot of the dynamics of how this disease works but also educate people about something that's so tiny you can't you can't ever hope to see it you need an electron microscope to visualize it and smoke particles that come off the end of a cigarette in some cases are bigger than this thing and yet this has the power to bring the world to its knees in the way that it has. And it's it's very hard to make that seem like a reasonable threat to people so that they can gauge risk and then judge their behaviour accordingly. So we've had to sort of give people very clear black and white guidelines, but that in- inevitably creates uncertainty for people because it's, it's very easy uh, to give people bad guidance. It's much harder to give people clear guidance, but when you make clear guidance, it's much harder for people to then interpret, well, what about this exception and that exception? So I think people are trying their best.
0: Talking about social distancing then, is two metres enough six feet? Because there seems to be doubt about that due to the aerosol effect that can spread droplets when people cough.
1: Personally, I'm doubtful. And um, about 10 years ago on The Naked Scientist, we actually did the experiment, not with coronavirus, I'm um, relieved to report but just to see how fast a sneeze goes and it was actually at the time of swine flu and someone wrote to us and they said dear naked scientists how fast does a sneeze travel you see these numbers trotted out all over the internet but there's not really any very good data to support it so we decided to do the experiment and we went out onto an open air park in cambridge and we found a nice black brick wall and we needed black to get good contrast because we put A piece of paper as a distance marker on the wall stood someone who was in our team in front of that wall and then we made them breathe pepper until they started to sneeze uncontrollably. And we took pictures at 300 frames a second with a very fast camera of them sneezing. And then we got the footage off the camera and went through it frame by frame. I suppose you could say it's sneeze frame photography. And you could see the pathway of the droplets across the field of view and because we had the distance marker we could work out because we knew how fast the camera was running it was one three hundredth of a second per shot we could work out how fast the snot particles were flying across the field of view and from that we we were able to calculate that the sneeze was running at a hundred kilometers an hour and those were the big particles we could see now The point is that 100 kilometres an hour is pretty fast. And if someone sneezes, the particles are going to be way beyond two metres in more than the time that you can say a chew. So people won't have the time to get out of the way. And, you know, if you fill the air around yourself with millions of virus particles, then they're just going to hang around in the air in their millions and someone's going to come and breathe them in. So I think if everyone's healthy and well, then two metres probably might serve its purpose. But if you've got someone symptomatic in that environment... Or you've got lots of people symptomatic and churning out virus in that environment or just breathing in that environment. They're probably filling these indoor environments with virus particles. So there is no such thing as a completely safe environment, apart from one in which all the people are uninfected and you've sterilised the place. And that's just not going to happen, is it? So this is this is not about making it perfectly safe. This is about reminding people that there is a risk and trying to get them to minimise that risk, minimise the, 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 close, the closeness that they get to people. It's not that you you should stay two metres with people. It's not like a speed limit, drive at 30 kilometres an hour or something and don't exceed it, don't go less than it. Uh, it, It's a guidance to stay at least two metres away. I think it could probably do with being more, but then you've got to make life practical as well, haven't you?
0: So the two metres, assuming that people are coughing and sneezing into their arms as they are supposed to, the two metres may address the issue of just breathing out particles but it probably should be further away yeah well
1: the, the thing is that it kind of assumes when you when you make these assumptions people who who come up with these models they're, they're running computer simulations that look at where particles go and they assume these particles have a finite lifetime but they don't have a, they don't have a short lifetime that's there one moment and then the person the sneezer goes and the the effect is over because those particles will drift around in the air for hours so if someone was in an area where they were being symptomatic for a protracted length of time, they're slowly going to increase the amount of infectious material in the air, aren't they? And so there reaches a point where they have significantly boosted the infectivity of a a patch of air um, when when people go through it. So I don't think it's as simple as saying it's two metres because viruses don't come with tape measures. They don't know, oh, it's two metres, I mustn't overstep that and I can't go that and infect that person who's at 2.1 metres. Viruses don't care. They're tiny particles of just infectious bags of genes. They, they don't come with tape measures.
0: We've talked about this before, the idea that you can take blood from recovered patients um, who would be rich in antibodies and transfuse that into people sick with the virus to treat mm. them. And the listener wants to know if these antibodies can only come from human blood or if there might be a quicker way of making them in the lab. He says helpful microorganisms have been enlisted to make human insulin for diabetics for about 35 years. Is it possible to make human antibodies in a similar way?
1: Probably not not with bacteria that easily, although times are changing and people are now making vaccines with tobacco plants um, and and antibodies in tobacco plants as well so anything's possible but the way we make therapeutic antibodies you actually do that in cells you make something called a hybridoma where you have a cell that's got the ability to grow a lot and you fuse it with a cell that's got the genetic know-how for making the class of antibody and the very specific antibody you want and that cell will then grow quite happily churning out millions and millions of these antibody particles and you can then purify them the problem is doing that in a dish is very constrained by how many cultured cells you've got. And to treat an appreciable number of people takes enormous amounts of cell culture. And as a result, it's really expensive and this is why these antibody-based therapies for say immune control when people have inflammatory diseases and that kind of thing, the antibody treatments can be amazingly effective, but they're amazingly expensive at the same time. So one other source could be to maybe, as the, as the person saying, take your lead from convalescent sera. This is where you go and get the plasma from people who have recovered from a disorder and you can extract antibodies from it and you can then give people those antibodies and they can, under certain circumstances, work in a therapeutic way. This is a well-established art. We do this all the time in the clinic for people, for instance, who have had chickenpox exposure when they're pregnant and they've never had chickenpox. A person who's pregnant can get more severe chickenpox so to to make sure the mother doesn't become severely unwell one way to treat that is to give a dose of antibodies from someone who is immune to chickenpox and then she gets passively protected by these infused antibodies. At the moment though we don't know whether such an approach would be useful for coronavirus infection. We know that at least part of this syndrome is an overactivity of the immune response so it could be that giving people a whole heap more antibodies from people who've already mounted an immune response may paradoxically intensify the disease rather than Help them. It may be there's a critical window period when one would have to intervene in this way to save somebody. And if you give the antibodies once they're into a later phase of the disease, when the immune system is becoming too active and doing more damage, because that's what we think is driving this, it may be it would be the wrong timing, if you see what I mean. On the other hand, it might be very useful. We do use antibodies from other patients in this way. It's called immune modulatory treatment. And it is, under certain circumstances, quite effective. I was also talking this week to some of the haematology doctors in Cambridge University's teaching hospital and they are about to set up a trial where they're going to infuse people with stem cells and these are just stem cells taken from a range of donors. They can actually grow these in a machine in the laboratory and very quickly make enormous numbers of these cells which have been shown to be able to exert an immune modulatory effect. And they're wondering if they might be able to gain control of the runaway train that is the immune system overreacting to coronavirus infection in some people by giving these infusions of stem cells. So they're going to pretty soon start a a clinical trial to try that as well. And that's sort of working in a similar way.
0: Because that goes to another question um, that's come in. And it says, given what kills people is the vast overreaction of the immune system to the virus, our cytokines. Couldn't we use drugs to hinder or block the cytokines in victims in ICU?
1: Yes, and this is exactly some of the trials that are ongoing. There are some antibody-based therapies and some other treatments that are being tried to undermine the runaway train of the immune response in these individuals. One of which we've mentioned is cell therapy. It might be possible to use convalescent serum in this way. People are also now trialling Very specific antibodies which target some of the signals that the immune system uses to fight. These are called cytokines and they include a range of signals called interleukins. Some of them play a really critical role in winding up and really tooling up some aspects of the immune response. And in some inflammatory disorders, you get overactivity of these immune circuits, as it were. So there are drugs already in existence to hit some of those. So scientists are now trying to repurpose some of those and try them to see if that would pull the rug from under the inflammatory response in these coronavirus patients. Very early days. We don't have any data yet.
0: You will have had a look at our current figures, 1,409 cases 816 recovered, 11 deaths. We seem to be on the correct trajectory, but is eradication a reasonable goal with a disease that could be, in so many cases, asymptomatic?
1: I think it's going to be really hard, Kim. And, you know, I've been talking to lots and lots of virologists, lots and lots of vaccine experts in the last few weeks, and they are very sceptical most people are of the opinion that given how well optimized to humans this new coronavirus is it has a really high prospect of just becoming another circulating human coronavirus and causing seasonal infections and cold-like symptoms or in rare cases more severe outbreaks because by the time that presumably happens the vast majority of us will have become immune to it either because of vaccines got invented or because we've become naturally infected with it my own view is that it's really really highly likely that a vaccine is going to take an extended period of time to appear and be scaled and scaled safely and then got into people and then protect enough people and by then uh, it won't have been possible to sustain these lockdowns in this way and there are many countries where lockdowns are just not going to work my one of my very good friends at work has been seconded to nigeria to go to help the effort there. The per- the president personally wrote to the university and said, can we have our guy because he helped with HIV a couple of years ago. And um, the thing is that social distancing in affluent countries where you can easily say to people, well, go and put yourself into isolation at home, means a very different thing from someone who lives 14 people to a house in, in a very poor township in some African countries and some parts of India, for example. So it's not a given that these measures will, will control this anyway in many parts of the world and we will end up probably with the, the virus resurging in many ways in many places so it'll be very very difficult for us to keep it out of our countries even if we do achieve suppression very effectively at home so I think probably given a vaccine is not going to materialize people are going to start saying things like well shall we do some kind of graded de-escalation and start with the youngest members of society who are at the least risk.
0: Of course thank you Chris and we're going to be talking to Dale Fisher from Singapore after 11 o'clock of course Singapore's numbers got very low looked like everything was under control. But now they've got this huge upsurge of cases stemming mainly from the huge dormitories where the migrant workers are housed. Uh, Thank you once again. Chris Smith, the virologist, on the line from the UK.